This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm John Echimendi. I'm the provost of Stanford. Uh, it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you to Stanford and to the Freeman Spogli Institute's second international co conference, A World at Risk. In a moment, I'll introduce Chip Blacker, the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute, who will formally launch the conference. But first, I want to say a word or two about today's topics and the role that universities must play in addressing them. When I was a child, the world was a simpler place. There's probably not a one of us in the room who would not endorse such a claim. This likely consensus is all the more sobering given the range of age ages that we represent. Now, that's either a mark of a widespread psychological illusion or a striking comment about the state of the world today. I think the latter. Of course, that's not to say that the world was particularly safe when you were young or when I was young. Speaking for myself, I learned to duck and cover from a nuclear blast about the same time I learned my multiplication tables, and I vividly recall rehearsing the drill when the nation held its collective breath through the events now known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. No question, the world was a dangerous place when I was young, but it was still a simpler place, a place where our leaders understood the risks, more or less, and could navigate by means of intelligence and instinct and political skill. What has changed is not the risk, but the number and complexity of problems that face the world today. The shifting nature of global politics combined with the worldwide environmental crises, the prevalence of terrorism, the threat of pandemics, the dangers of nuclear proliferation, just to name a few issues, requires a different approach from universities than in the past. As this conference aptly suggests, much is at risk. That's where the Freeman Spogli Institute comes in. Stanford recently announced an initiative led by the Institute to identify key challenges of global importance to contribute to the solutions and to contribute to their solutions by leveraging the university's academic strength and international reach. The initiative draws scholars from throughout the university, many of whom you'll hear from today. The initiative is launching new research, education, and outreach efforts that fall under three broad headings, peace and security, governance, and human well-being. Universities have, of course, always done this. In fact, many, if not most, of the scholars in this room have been involved in efforts to find solutions to challenges faced by the world and its nations. What makes this effort different is the fact that we have committed ourselves as an institution to seek practical applications of our knowledge and research and to teach our students to do the same. There's something else, I believe, that sets Stanford's initiative apart. It stems from the university's historical strength in practical problem solving, combined with a long tradition of interdisciplinary collaboration. The challenges of the 21st century require that universities change. We must move beyond traditional academic boundaries and embrace new ways of doing research. Addressing the multifaceted challenge of, for example, a pandemic, whether AIDS or the avian flu, requires the contributions and collaborations of physicians, geneticists, ethicists, political scientists, legal scholars, 
environmental researchers, economists, and many more. The world is facing challenges of unprecedented complexity, and the traditional model of single-discipline research will not produce solutions with the rapidity they require. When Jane and Leland Stanford created this university, they envisioned an institution that would educate students to become useful and contributing citizens. We can best serve that mission today by producing graduates well-versed in the complex problems of a world at risk and willing to make the difficult choices that might lead to their solution. The Freeman Spogli Institute anchors this new initiative under the able leadership of Chip Blacker. Besides serving as director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Chip is the Olivier Nomellini Family Fellow in Undergraduate Education and Professor by Courtesy of Political Science. During the first Clinton administration, Professor Blacker served as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs in the National Security Council. At the NSC, he oversaw the implementation of U.S. policy toward Russia and the new independent states, while also assisting the President and the National Security Advisor on matters relating to the former Soviet Union. From 1998 to 2003, he served as co-director of the Aspen Institute's U.S.-Russia Dialogue, which brings together U.S. and Russian specialists on foreign and defense policy for discussion of U.S.-Russian relations. He was a member of the U.S. Commission on National Security in the 21st Century, known as the Hart-Rudman Commission. A member of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, he also serves on the Board of Directors of the International Research and Exchange Exchanges Board in Washington, D.C. Professor Blacker has held fellowships at Harvard, Stanford, and the Council on Foreign Relations. He holds an honorary doctorate from the Russian Academy of Sciences for his work on U.S.-Russian relations. He's a graduate of Occidental College and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Please welcome Chip Blacker. Thank you, John, for that thoughtful introduction of the day. And thank you for your kind words. And most of all, um, thank you for all that you do for Stanford. Welcome to the Freeman Spogli Institute's second annual international conference. As Stanford University's primary forum for the consideration of major international issues of our time, we at FSI are dedicated to interdisciplinary research and teaching on some of the most pressing and complex problems facing the global community today. It has been acutely apparent to us at FSI that we must actively engage a world at risk. Risk posed by the growing number of nuclear issues on the international agenda, by the insurgency in Iraq, by global poverty, hunger, and environmental degradation, by the tensions of nationalism versus regionalism in Asia, by infectious diseases and the threat of a global pandemic, by terrorism, and by the geopolitical, financial, and ecological risks of the West's current energy policies, especially its voracious appetite for oil. 
When we planned our conference and dedicated it to a world at risk, we could not possibly have known how immediate so many of these issues would be. The nuclear programs and ambitions of North Korea and Iran pose grave dangers to the international community, as do the risks associated with the possible acquisition by terrorists of nuclear materials, issues that we will explore in our morning plenary session. This afternoon, beginning with a luncheon address on global pandemics, we will focus on the incipient risks to human beings the world over from infectious diseases, terrorism, aging infrastructure and port security, and potential energy shocks to the global system. We have planned breakout sessions to enable you to explore these and other critical issues with Stanford faculty and outside experts firsthand. You'll have three panels to choose from this morning. Food security and the environment, pandemics, infectious diseases, and bioterrorism, and insurgencies, failed states, and the challenge of governance. Good luck making a choice. <laughs> Following the afternoon plenary, we will have four equally compelling sessions. U.S. efforts at democracy promotion in Russia, Iraq, and Iran, politics, economics, and terrorism in the European Union, the implication of China's rise for the world economy and energy markets, and cross-currents of nationalism and regionalism in Northeast Asia. Faced with such a choice, the only consolation I can offer is that we are taping all of these and the audio record will be available to you on the Institute's website. One of the most <clears throat> remarkable things about Stanford is the outstanding assemblage of talent on this campus. As someone who has spent effectively his entire career here, it is a privilege to work with some of the most outstanding intellects, uh, statesmen, and public servants of our time. Warren Christopher, William Perry, and George Schultz tower among them. We're delighted to have them join our deliberations by offering opening remarks. Let me introduce them briefly, for I know that we are all eager uh, to hear what they have to say. Warren Christopher was our nation's 63rd Secretary of State, serving from January 1993 to January 1997 under President Bill Clinton. Previously, he was Deputy Secretary of State under President Carter, who awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian award for his role in negotiating the release of the 52 American hostages held by Iran. Secretary Christopher is a senior partner and former chairman of the Los Angeles law firm O'Melveny and Myers, where he consults on a wide range of international issues and complex client disputes. Chris has given wonderful service to Stanford as a member and later as chairman of the Board of Trustees. He's also served as chairman of the board of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, as director and vice chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, and as director of the Los Angeles World Affairs Council. He is currently co-chairman with John Bryson of the Pacific Council on International Policy. 
He has authored four books, and his 2001 Chances of a Lifetime topped the Los Angeles Times bestseller list. Chris received his BA from the University of Southern California and his JD from Stanford Law School, where he was president of the Law Review, elected to the Order of the Coif, and remains at Stanford Law School a legendary figure, not least because his first gig after graduating from Stanford Law School was to clerk for Justice William O. Douglas of the US Supreme Court. William Perry was our country's 19th Secretary of Defense, serving from February 1994 to January 1997 under President Clinton. He had previously served as Deputy Secretary of Defense and Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Secretary Perry was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, this in 1997, in addition to Distinguished Service Awards from the Department of Defense, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Defense Intelligence Agency, NASA, and last but not least, the Coast Guard. Secretary Perry is currently the Michael and Barbara Berberian Professor at Stanford with a joint appointment in the School of Engineering and the Freeman Spogli Institute. One of this country's most highly regarded experts on national security and arms control issues, Secretary Perry negotiated the 1994 framework agreement with North Korea, which froze that country's nuclear program. He continues to be actively involved in unofficial track two diplomacy in the region through the, defense, through the Preventive Defense Project, a joint collaboration between Stanford and Harvard that he co-chairs. He is currently a member of the congressionally mandated Iraq study group led by former Secretary of State James Baker and Lee Hamilton, former congressman and director of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, whose report on options in Iraq, to put it conservatively, is so eagerly awaited by our nation. A member of the National Academy of Engineering and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Secretary Perry received his BS and his MS from Stanford and his PhD from Penn State, all in mathematics. George Shultz was the 60th Secretary of the United States, serving from July 1982 to January 1989 under President Ronald Reagan. He too was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1989 for his distinguished service to this country. He also received the Seoul Peace Prize, the Eisenhower Medal for Leadership in Service, and the Reagan Distinguished American Award. Not only did Secretary Schultz hold the nation's top cabinet office as Secretary of State, he also served as Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Labor, and Director of the Office of Management and Budget. In an earlier incarnation, Secretary Schultz was a Dean of the University of Chicago's Law School excuse me, Graduate School of Business, and from 1974 to 1982, he was president of the Bechtel Group in San Francisco and a professor at Stanford. In January 1989, Secretary Schultz uh, rejoined Stanford as the Jack Steele Parker Professor of International Economics at the Graduate School of Business and a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution where he is currently the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow. He is chairman of the California Governor's Council of Economic Advisors, 
co-chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger and chairman of the J.P. Morgan Chase International Council. He too is a best-selling best author, in particular for his 1993 memoir, Turmoil and Triumph, My Years as Secretary of State. Secretary Schultz earned his B.A. from Princeton and his Ph.D. in Industrial Economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We are delighted that Stanford now claims him or reclaims him as a scholar, consultant, and presidential advisor. We are honored by your presence, one and all, and we look forward to your comments today. Let me begin by welcoming comments by Secretary Christopher. Thank you, Chip. Good morning. It's really great to be back here on the Stanford campus. As soon as I find my way around it, uh, I'll be much more comfortable. Uh, thank you, uh, Chip, for that very nice introduction. I think it just goes to prove if you've lived a long time, there are a lot of things to be said about you. Uh, Chip has asked me and my colleagues to comment on what we see as the areas of greatest risk in the world. There's lots of competition for that. Uh, those who are familiar with my time at State Department will not be surprised by my choice. The Middle East, always a very difficult neighborhood, has descended into hate, violence, and chaos. It really is a dangerous mess. Israel, the strongest military state in the region, has intellectually, if not emotionally, accepted the two-state solution. The problem is that it doesn't have a negotiating partner. And its effort to impose a solution unilaterally in the Gaza has turned out very badly. The recent Israeli incursion into Lebanon began as a justifiable response to the kidnapping of two Israeli soldiers. But that move soon es escalated into a deep penetration that was hard to defend on human rights grounds and unsuccess unsuccessful on the merits. The result was a humiliating stalemate with Hezbollah and a weakened Omer government in Israel. The Palestinians are certainly living up to Abba Ibn's prophetic remark that they never miss a chance to miss a chance. Uh, this time, the internal struggle between Hamas and President Mahmoud Abbas has precluded negotiations with Israel beyond the uh, killing, perhaps the most distressing aspect of the delay is the Palestinian people are sinking further and further into poverty, despair, and anger. Ray of hope in the last few days, I'm glad to say, some prospect of a coalition government for the Palestinians, which I hope Israel would feel able to negotiate with. In Iraq, the U.S. invasion has exposed for the world to see the religious tensions and indeed the hatred between Shiites and Sunnis. The Sunnis have utterly refused to accept the fact that the Shiites won a democratic election. They don't seem to believe in elections in that part of the world. In parts of the country where both the Sunnis and Shiites are and where they live side by side, the sectarian violence has made life daily life almost unbearable. The daily diet of roadside bombs and mortar attacks by insurgents 
of keeping the, are keeping the country in a constant state of turmoil. The question as to whether this country has descended into civil war has become more somatic than substantive. Indeed, it is an undeclared civil war. Whatever the U.S. departure scenario, it appears that, to me at least, that Iraq will remain a center of instability for a long time to come. The nation has turned to Secretary Perry as it has so often in the past to help find a way out of that morass. Iran, a really huge country with 68 million people, great oil wealth, and a powerful central government, has become an increasingly powerful and provocative force in the Middle East. The Shiite-dominated government there has virtually unbridled freedom to meddle in Iraq, to exert its leverage over Hezbollah in Lebanon, and to provide support to Hamas in the Palestinian areas. With its aggressive nuclear weapons program, Iran is on the way of becoming the Godzilla of the Middle East, a wide-ranging force that unnerves not just the world's nuclear powers, but the non-Shiite nations in the region. The generic threat opposed, pressed by the Shiite forces, weighs most heavily on Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Lebanon, but indeed it affects the entire Middle East. In Egypt, the pretensions of democracy floundered on the fears of the Muslim Brotherhood. In Lebanon, a democratically elected government may be unable to stand up to the Shiite-leaning Hezbollah. And in Saudi Arabia, you can just imagine how deeply apprehensive are the, ruling, the aging ruling party there about the, the Shiite terrorism as it spreads in the Middle East and across, the, across their own country. Unfortunately, and giving all due credit to our best intentions, the United States has aggravated these threats, both by action and inaction. I have spoken briefly about how our misadventure in Iraq has stirred up Shiites throughout the region. In the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, our government's decision to stand on the sidelines in the peace process and to look the other way while Israel abused its power in Lebanon, they really all compromise our ability to act as an honest broker and really has further hurt our reputation in the Middle East. Nevertheless, and here I want to turn the corner briefly, the United States remains the most influential foreign power in the region. Despite all the calamities of the area in the past years, Nevertheless, we are the most influential power in that region. What troubles me is that to date, we've not used our standing to launch an aggressive diplomatic offensive. We've essentially refused to meet two of the most important players in the region, Iran and Syria, by imposing self-defeating preconditions for discussions. Preconditions that said, unless you concede on the major points in the issue, we're not about to talk to you. Military force, at least in the Middle East, has essentially run its course for the time being. But we must not give up on the Middle East. It's too important to us for many, many reasons. We have to return to old-fashioned diplomacy with all of its frustrations and delays, the kind of diplomacy that the 
Secretary Schultz wrote about so eloquently in his book, Turmoil and Triumph. We must get back to that kind of an approach. We need to make measured, graduated use of our soft power to change events through diplomacy. The United States has a tremendous opportunity, as we always do, to reverse the downslide in our reputation around the world by a diplomatic effort that can put us back in the leadership of the world, which we have in so many different ways and need to reclaim through our diplomacy. Thank you very much. We live in dangerous times. Last month, about a thousand of our service personnel in Iraq were either killed, wounded, or maimed. The Taliban is resurging in Afghanistan. North Korea has just tested a nuclear bomb, and Iran is not far behind. China's power is rising, and Russia's democracy is falling. I want to talk briefly about some of these security challenges. And as a frame of reference, I'm going to describe the security challenges our country faced at the time I became Secretary of Defense and how those challenges have evolved. When I accepted the job, the Cold War had been over for a few years. So I knew that the security challenges of the Cold War were behind us. But I did not know what new security challenges we would face. I knew that we had not arrived at the end of history. History was waiting to be written in the hills of Bosnia, in the streets of Haiti, and in the deserts of Iraq. And I realized that peace and stability in this new world would not come naturally, that we would have to work hard to achieve it. Peace, wrote Elie Wiesel, is not God's gift to his children. Peace is our gift to each other. During the Cold War, each of my predecessors had inherited two security strategies, containment and deterrence. But by the time I became Secretary of Defense, these strategies were no longer relevant. So my first job as Secretary of Defense was to define the security challenges we would face. Only then could I determine a security strategy to replace the strategies of containment and deterrence that had prevailed during the previous four decades. By February of 1994, I had defined those challenges. First, the nuclear arms race really was over. But I knew that the world still had more than 20,000 nuclear weapons, many in countries facing social and economic collapse. Our challenge was to get the loose nukes under control before criminals or terror groups got a hold of them. Second, the world had held the line on nuclear proliferation for more than three decades. But now five nations were threatening to go nuclear. India, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. And three more, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, had just become nuclear with the breakup of the Soviet Union. Our challenge was to stop that hemorrhage of proliferation. Third, there were many small to medium-sized countries who were in turmoil that threatened to break out in civil war. Bosnia, Serbia, Haiti, Rwanda, Afghanistan. Our challenge was to strike a proper balance between diplomacy on the one hand and threat of force on the other hand 
so, we, so that we could deal with these problems without the unnecessary use of military force. Fourth, Russia had abandoned communism and, and was in political, economic, and social chaos, much as Germany had been in the last days of the Weimar Republic. Our challenge was to keep Russia from going the way of Germany in 1933 by bringing them into the circle of Western nations. Fifth, China was experiencing explosive growth. Our challenge was to work constructively with China so that they would not become our new enemy and confront us with a new Cold War. And finally, I knew that we had developed the best military in the world to deal with the Soviet Union. Now that this threat was gone, our challenge was to maintain the quality and the morale of our military so that they could deal with any future contingencies. That is, we had to keep from breaking the force, as had happened after the Vietnam War. Well, those are the challenges I faced in 1994. How do they look today? During the period I was secretary, my top priority was to reduce the danger of loose nukes. And using the Non-Lugar program, we were able to dismantle about 10,000 nuclear weapons and 1,000 launchers in the former Soviet Union and in the United States. But this effort has lost much of its intensity. In fact, during the five years after 9-11, there were fewer weapons, nuclear weapons dismantled than in the five years prior to 9-11. I, <clears throat> I know that the new Secretary of Defense will have Iraq as his first priority, but I will urge him also to give serious attention to the loose nukes problem. The danger of terrorists getting a nuclear bomb is very real, and they will not put their efforts on hold while we are trying to deal with Iraq. We had mixed success with the second challenge. We were successful in reversing the proliferation of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus. But we were unsuccessful in persuading India and Pakistan not to go nuclear, although that was not from the lack of trying. And the unfinished business for my time as secretary was dealing with the threat that Iraq, Iran, and North Korea would go nuclear. Our Iraq strategy had been to put Iraq in a box with overflights and on-site inspectors. That strategy did not cause Saddam to give up his nuclear aspirations, but it did keep him from realizing them. The Bush administration was not set on the strategy and decided to resolve the issue by invading Iraq and overthrowing the regime. After American forces occupied Iraq, the team sent in to find nuclear weapons reported that there was no evidence of a viable nuclear program. The containment strategy had, in fact, worked. Today, our troops are caught in a crossfire of a deadly civil war in Iraq, which I will have more to say about in my discussion of regional conflicts. In contrast to their aggressive approach to Iraq, the administration took a passive approach to North Korea, which did, in fact, have a viable nuclear weapons program. On taking office, they suspended all discussions with North Korea, much to the dismay of South Korea. In 2002, on the report that North Korea had started a covert program to enrich uranium, the Bush administration suspended the agreed framework, which had been used to contain the program to that point, and refused to enter into any discussions with North Korea. With the suspension of the agreed framework, North Korea then reopened their nuclear facility at Yongbyon 
and reprocessed the spent fuel that had been stored there under UN supervision. This gave them enough plutonium to make about six nuclear bombs, the very action that we had feared when I was Secretary of Defense and that the agreed framework had been preventing. At this time, the Chinese became concerned and persuaded all sides to join the six-party talks in Beijing, which was designed to resolve the issue. These talks went on for more than three years with no tangible results. In July, North Korea conducted the long-range missile test, and in October, they conducted the test of a nuclear bomb. The bomb tested was of plutonium design and was relatively low yield, about one kiloton. All the while, they continued the operation of their nuclear facilities at Yongbyon to produce even more plutonium. I believe that it is fair to conclude that the passive strategy in dealing with North Korea has been a failure, a failure that increases the danger to all of us. North Korea has agreed to resume the six-party talks next month. The talks are unnecessary, but not a sufficient condition for success in containing the North Korean nuclear program. We have had, after all, four such meetings over the last three years that produced no restraint at all on the North Korea program. There has been some talk that the United States should simply get used to a nuclear North Korea, but I find that difficult to accept. I am not concerned about the prospect of North Korea firing a nuclear ICBM at the United States. They are very far from having that capability, and even if they get it, deterrence would still be effective. The North Korea regime is not seeking to commit suicide. But I am deeply concerned that a robust North Korea nuclear program will stimulate a dangerous arms race in the Pacific and increase the danger of Iran becoming a nuclear power. Above all, I fear that a nuclear North Korea increases the danger of a terror group getting a nuclear bomb. In the meantime, Iran is operating a number of nuclear facilities and is getting closer to having a nuclear weapon. They have had for some years at Bushir, a reactor provided by the Russians that could be used to make plutonium, much as the North Koreans have done. Russia is trying to work with Iran to persuade them to send the spent fuel to Russia for reprocessing so that they cannot use the plutonium to make bombs. But that issue remains unresolved. Iran also is building a facility to enrich uranium, which is an alternative route to a nuclear bomb. This program, concealed for years from UN inspectors, was very slow getting off the ground until the Iranians got significant assistance from AQ Khan, who had run Pakistan's bomb program. The European Union is negotiating with Iran to try to get them to forswear enriching their uranium, but those talks seem to be going nowhere. The United States is clearly a very interested party in these negotiations, but has declined to be an active participant in them. So my forecast is that with the present weak negotiating strategies, Iran is moving inexorably towards becoming a nuclear power. In case we did not understand Iran's interest in nuclear weapons, the Iranian president clarified them by stating that Israel should be wiped from the face of the earth. Some believe that the Iranian president is all bark and no bite. 
but the Israeli government is not so sanguine. Indeed, one of the ways that this nuclear crisis could come to a head would be a preemptive strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities by Israel. Even if the intended consequences of such a strike were to be successful, it is impossible to overstate the dangers attendant to the unintended consequences. My third challenge as Secretary of Defense was containing regional wars, which we successfully did in Haiti and in Bosnia. The Bush administration has dealt with the regional countries in turmoil by successfully overthrowing the dangerous Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which was a great success, and by invading Iraq, which has run into a host of problems. The decision to invade Iraq was based on three judgments of the administration. The imminent danger of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which turned out not to be true. The support of the Iraqi government for terror groups like Al-Qaeda, which turned out not to be true. And the belief that a democratic regime in Iraq would significantly improve security and stability in the Mideast. It is certainly true that if we could have created a democratic regime in Iraq, that it would have had a positive effect on other countries in the Mideast. But that turned out to be far more difficulty than the administration understood. And the result is a bloody insurgency that is turning into a civil war. It should have been clear from the beginning that attempting to impose a democratic regime on a country like Iraq was a hugely difficult undertaking, if it could be done at all. But the Secretary of Defense insisted that the invasion be carried out with far fewer American troops than the Army thought necessary, and with only minimal support from other nations. And his deputy in Iraq decided to disband the Iraqi security forces after the Iraqi government collapsed. Thus, when the insurgency started, there were not enough troops in place to keep it from gaining a foothold. Belatedly, we began recruiting and training Iraqis to augment the understaffed American troops there, but it could prove to be too late. I'm a member of a bipartisan panel that was commissioned to chart a way forward in Iraq. We have been meeting for the last six months, struggling to find actions that we could recommend that had a reasonable chance of getting us out of the very deep hole we are in. Next month, we will be reporting our findings to the President, to the Congress, and to the American people. That is about all I can say at this time, except to say that you should not expect silver bullets. Since I have run out of time, I will defer to the, any later discussion the last three challenges, Russia, China, and military readiness, and I will proceed directly to a summing up. For my brief comments, I think you can see why I do not believe that we have reached the end of history. We are facing new dangers, and we must adjust our thinking accordingly. Uh, the Iraq study group is in its final stages of deliberation. I cannot forecast for you that what comes out of this, the recommendations that come out of this group will turn out to be effective. But I can tell you the spirit in which I will be approaching these deliberations the next few weeks. And the spirit was inspired by Abraham Lincoln. The occasion, he said, is piled high with difficulty. And we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew 
and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. Thank you. has never been at a more promising moment than it is today. The, econ the world economy is moving forward in an unprecedented manner. The IMF recently issued a, a world economic report with a little table in it. It had some countries in it and regions. The remarkable thing about the chart is that there are no minus signs on it. I don't mean that there are no countries that aren't declining, but uh, all across the world, economic expansion is taking place. And I think more and more people understand what it takes to bring that about. We see poverty being reduced dramatically as China and India expand, and Brazil, and other countries around the world. It's remarkable. And of course, the anchor of it is this fabulous United States economy. We've only had six down quarters in the last 20 years. We continue to expand. We have some problems, but by and large, we are giving fantastic leadership to the world economy. So a way of putting the issues, particularly the things that Chris and Bill talked about, the problems, is to say we have to avoid allowing the security threats that we see all around us from aborting these fantastic opportunities that the world has right in front of it. That's really the crisis. How do you avoid aborting these sensational opportunities for people to have more political, more economic openness, progress, standards of living rise, poverty eliminated, and so on? That's the way to put it. Now, there are all sorts of things that have to be done. And Chris and Bill uh, talked about uh, them in very specific terms, and I agree uh, that our diplomacy needs to be cranked up, and uh, there's lots and lots and lots of work to do. But let me identify four things that I think we should be doing. And this is in the spirit of saying that it's important for the United States to step up and take leadership, inspire the world. First of all, I think we should say we aspire to have a world with no nuclear weapons. Bill and I were at a conference recently here on campus at the Hoover Institution that uh, talked about the implications of the Reykjavik meeting between President Reagan and President Gorbachev. And that was a subject that was very much on the table. I might say when we got back from Reykjavik, we saw how much people loved their nuclear weapons because people came, Margaret Thatcher came over and gave us a whipping. How could we possibly talk about getting rid of nuclear weapons? But 
I think that is a very important objective to set out there. That's what ought to be. During the Cold War, you could argue that mutual assured destruction and con containment was, and deterrence was a, uh, was a strategy, and it worked. But if you say, how is deterrence going to work today? If we have North Korea with nuclear weapons, if Iran winds up with nuclear weapons, we're going to have deterrence all over the place. And then there is the all too present threat of terrorists getting a hold of a tactical nuclear weapon or somehow getting in control, and they are essentially not deterrable. So the concept of deterrence doesn't work in the world that we're looking at. We've got to shift our gears and say, let us aspire to have no nuclear weapons. If you set that out as a goal, then you start saying to yourself, programmatically in a sense, what do you do? Well, you try to get control of the enrichment process. And say there are certain places in the world where this goes on, they're internationally supervised. And any country in the world that wants to run a nuclear power plant can get their enriched uranium at a reasonable cost. And so on, and I could list a whole set of things that we talked about. Obviously, uh, getting hold of the North Korean and Iranian problems are critical. And I think that if we set the right kind of goal and created an atmosphere in doing that, it might make those negotiations a little bit easier, not necessarily uh, solve them, but it might make them a little easier. So that is number one. Let's have the president stand up and say, like President Eisenhower, like President Kennedy, like President Reagan, I also think we ought to try to rid the world of nuclear weapons. And here's the way we do it. So that's initiative number one. Initiative number two has to do with the environment. And I see Don Kennedy sitting over here. And I remember when the, the IIS, now the FSI, was started. And uh, we, I helped to get it going. And we had uh, lots of discussions of this subject. And Don kept pounding on me about global warming and so on, and I was skeptical. I'm not skeptical anymore, because I keep looking at the evidence, and I think there is clearly a big issue here. The Kyoto Protocols are basically a dead letter. Let's stop beating that dead horse. President Bush is identified as the person who killed them, but actually the Senate voted 95 to nothing. They didn't want the protocols to be submitted. So it never was a starter in the United States. But let's rearrange ourselves and take a different approach and advocate it. And I, of course, am oriented to what are called the Montreal Protocols as a different way to go about uh, an, an environmental issue. This was something done in the Reagan administration having to do with the ozone layer. But here would be the approach. We say, let us all agree to study this problem carefully. Of course, it's been getting a lot of study. But I think there are lots of things to be discovered, not just that the Earth is warming, but exactly why. Because if you 
the better you are at figuring out why, the better you are at figuring out what to do about it. So there's still plenty to learn. And we need to involve people more in the learning process. The United States needs to put its information into the pot aggressively. And we need to involve China and India in the process so they become, they own, in a sense, the studies to a great degree. And we need to, as in the Montreal Protocol, we said we keep studying the problem, but we also keep studying possible things that you can do about it. You don't set impossible goals, but you identify possible things that you can do. And in this field right now, I think there are lots of things that can be done, and if done on a wide scale, with the willingness on the part of wealthy countries to help the poorer countries do them, you could get a long ways. I remember the issue of oil way back in 1969. President Reagan, President, President Nixon appointed me as a Secretary of Labor. Why Secretary of Labor gets a deal like this, I don't know. But he made me chairman of a cabinet uh, task force on the oil import control system. At that time, inherited from President Eisenhower, we had a system that said you couldn't import more than 20% of the oil you used. And you'd have to say President Eisenhower knew something about national security, and he, that was why he worried about it. Uh, <clears throat> and our task force made recommendations that uh, were not followed, but we did publish our report, and it turned out, in retrospect, you look at it, it was a pretty good report. But then as Secretary of the Treasury, we had the first oil explosion, and I can remember people coming in to me saying, Here's, here are alternative things to do, and even in my uh, economist mode, I don't know any science and engineering and stuff like that, but even I could see this is pie in the sky, there's nothing here. But now, there are all kinds of things that you can do, and if done on a broader scale, would really make a difference. So we can keep studying what to do. And a lot of the things that you do for the United States don't have to, don't have, to have any technology. For instance, why can't we eliminate the tariff on imported ethanol from Brazil and other places? Explain to me why that makes sense. Why do we have quotas on the amount of sugar we can import so that sugar in the United States costs three times as much as any place else? So this is not uh, high technology. This is just doing sensible things in our political willpower. At any rate, I think there are lots of things that we could do and that others could do that would help with the combined global warming problem, but also help us get rid of this addiction, as the President said, to oil. I don't know how many times we have to be hit on the head with a two-by-four to learn that this is a gigantic problem and we need to do something about it, and we can do something about it if we'll get at it. So that's initiative leadership point number two. Number three, a lot of the problems that we have, not all of them by any means, but a lot of the problems that Chris and Bill alluded to 
emerge out of the turmoil in the world of Islam. And we don't, I don't think, begin to understand it. We have in the Hoover archives all of the um, material, archival material from Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe. And so there's been some conferences about that. Uh, what can we learn by looking at this material? Well, you learn, number one, that these efforts made a big impact. And number two, there are a whole bunch of lessons. And then if you subject these lessons, realizing that the communicating with Islam is a very different problem than that one, nevertheless, there's a huge carryover. For example, in the Cold War period, the radios realized that it was very important for them to understand the people with whom they were trying to communicate and that they weren't all the same by a long shot. And so a huge effort was made, not just by the radios, but all of, for instance, these Soviet studies uh, efforts at Harvard and Stanford and Columbia, and I don't know where all, but there were a lot of them. Condi Rice was, in a sense, a product of that. She speaks Russian, studied Russian military things. So it's a huge effort. What kind of an effort is there in the United States universities to understand Islam? Not very much. Not very good. Very slanted. So I think we need to make a big effort at understanding the world of Islam and communicating and try to, try to get it across that, I'll say, mainstream Islam has even more of a stake than we do in getting control of this radicalism and terrorism that's connected with it. And this can be done, but it takes a big effort. And this is something that I think universities have a potential big contribution to. And my fourth area is protectionism. Protectionism is rising. It's bad. Absolutely terrible thing. We had some great statesmen right after World War II, led by President Truman, who looked at the world in the 1930s and what had happened, and they tried to design a better world. And they did a super job. And one of the things they realized was that the rise of protectionism in the 1930s was ruinous to economies, but also made a major contribution to the war. And they designed, they gave us a system which gradually opened economies across the world, reduced tariffs, reduced quotas, and that has worked. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why the world is so prosperous and promising today and why we in the United States are so prosperous is that we have open trading. Now we're in danger of losing it. The Doha round is stuck, largely because of French protectionism of its agriculture. Not wholly, but largely. It's not too late. And I think we should have a huge effort to make this 
succeed because the best defense in this area is a good offense. And if we don't go on the offensive and the protectionist forces rise and we start uh, shutting out products, then this promising economic scene that I outlined will not be so promising. So we need a lot of leadership in uh, that arena. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.